I remember this pulpit. It's huge up here. There's real estate here. This here, put the kitchen up there. Um, good morning. Good morning. You can keep playing if you want to. The whole time. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> That'd be good, wouldn't it? Just the whole time, and then when it stopped, it's like, okay, that's how you tell the preacher, you're done now. <laughs> Sorry, Alex. Um, turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 37. The last time I was here, I preached on the first half of this psalm, but since that was six or seven months ago, I won't expect you. It won't be like a preacher says, now, last time I was here, here's what we saw, but I'm going to do that anyway because I know that you are students of the Bible. You remember everything that I said. People are like, I've never seen you before in my life. That is okay. That is okay. Last time I was here, we called the first half of Psalm 37, Three Lies and the Truth. I just thought, you know, clever, I'd just flip it around, three truths and a lie. Um, the lies that I showed you in the first half of this psalm were, uh, you know, the enemy says you're depressed, you can't handle your life, which is not true, that you're deprived, that you're missing out on something, it's not true, um, and that you're deserted, you're not going to be left with anything, you follow the Lord. And we saw that the Lord uh, was calling us not to be anxious about anything concerning the lives of others who don't rely on him. And there's also a caution concerning looking to anything besides the Lord for relief. Scripture calls that idolatry. And we also saw that the antidote for anxiety, ironically enough, was actually waiting on him. Waiting on him that peace doesn't come in the absence of hardship, but if we wait for him in it. And Satan loves to throw us off our game and get our eyes off of God. And as we're becoming weary in waiting, he lies to us. And because we don't want to wait, it's just easy to believe. And this morning we're going to finish Psalm 37. See, it's just like we met last week. We're going to finish Psalm 37 this morning looking at three truths and a lie. And it's the, it's the same kind of themes. Last time I was here, I asked you, um, what, what invites anxiety in you? And this morning I say, what makes you feel secure? Or what invites you to feel insecure? And it's the exact same themes that come to mind. It's, uh, it's your health. It's am I going to have enough money? Or do I have solid relationships? Am I going to be taken care of is what we're asking. And instead of worrying from either, you know, am I going to have enough, which is the invitation for anxiety, or how am I going to make sure that I have enough, which is the invitation to feel secure, I want to show us that God's Word is rich in promises. And so I just want to, I want to reframe the question. Instead of invitation for anxiety or an invitation for insecurity, what we're really saying is this. How much freedom do you have to believe God's promises for you? How much certainty do you have? How much confidence do you have? How much liberty do you have that what God promises he's going to fulfill in your life is really true? Satan still knows how easy it is for us to be thrown off our game. And so for every truth we're given in Scripture, there's a parallel lie that he loves to invite us to believe. But what if, what if you knew for certain that every threat that touched your life that there was a provision, a promise adequate 
to match each one of those and that you were going to be taken care of. Follow along as we read uh, Psalm 37, verses 23 through 40. This is the Psalm of David. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. I have been young, and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, or his descendants begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends, and his descendants are a blessing. Depart from evil and do good, so you will abide forever. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever. But the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to kill him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand or let him be condemned when he is judged. Wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. I have seen a wicked, violent man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. Then he passed away, and he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man, and behold the upright. For the man of peace will have a future, but transgressors will be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked will be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, your word is beautiful. And we pray that your spirit would bring those truths to our minds this morning, throughout the week, and that you would change our hearts to trust you at deeper levels than we already do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, the year is 1990, and I am attending the University of Missouri, Columbia, Missouri. I'm in, uh, in my studies there. And there's a guy across the hall, and we're becoming friends, but he is not a believer. And so throughout the time that we kind of hang out and have classes together, I start sharing my faith with him. And every time I do that, he gets really irritated pretty quick. And I remember one night we're, we're walking to where our cars are parked and it's a pretty good distance away and it's just black, black, black night with no moon, but there's illions of stars. You've been in this situation. You can just see forever and I'm just overwhelmed by the glory and the beauty of God. And I said, Jeff, look up. What do you see? And he cursed and then he said, I see sky. What do you see? And I thought, okay, well, the moment that I was sure was there isn't there. And once again, I just feel like a failure with Jeff. And uh, I, will, I will push pause on that conversation. That night I had a dream. And dreams are kind of weird, and this is no exception. I was on a bicycle, but the seat of this bicycle was raised up so that I just kind of scared of heights riding on this bike looking at how high I am. And I'm riding, I'm trying to ride up a staircase big flight of stairs. You're like, well, that's stupid. Well, it's a dream, remember. Um, I'm going up this staircase, and in my mind, all I can think is, 
I'm not going to make it to the top. There's no way I'm going to make it to the top. And I'm making it. I'm going. And then just shy of the top, the bike, just like slow motion, starts to go over. And all the way down, I'm thinking to myself, I knew I wouldn't make it. I knew I wouldn't make it. And when I land, there is a man standing right to my shoulder. And I remember seeing his feet. And I remember looking. He's wearing this kind of dark robe. And I do not remember a face. But he said to me, and I almost, I will tell you that I heard the words audibly as I woke up. You're doing great. And it was just one of those, what just happened? And I remember reading Psalm 37 on the verses that we picked up on this morning. And they just leapt off the page at me. And I'm not commending how God speaks to you in dreams, because that just rarely happens to me. But he does speak to us through his word. And when I read that that morning, the steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, because I fell, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. So beautiful to me in that moment. I will never forget that dream. I forget. I have a lot of crazy dreams. Had them last night. I will never forget that dream. I want to settle on these three gigantic truths in this passage for those trusting in the Lord. Just a real easy outline. It's pulled straight from the text. You've got the verses in your, uh, in your bulletin there. Um, provision. God is going to provide for you. Protection. God's going to protect you. And there's promise because he promises us. I will provide for you. The provision at Mizzou was that I was reminded that my standing in the Lord was, you're doing great, even though you feel like you're disqualified and you're getting pummeled, uh, you are doing great. And so it follows. And here's what I want us to see. I want us just to take, you all have Bibles in your laps, and I'm going to ask you to use them because I want to show you in Scripture, besides Psalm 37, where this comes up. I want you to be convinced if you're not already. Provision does not exclude this experience of feeling pummeled. It is the experience of being a Christian. So I want you to turn with me to Psalm 66, a few chapters to the right. As you're turning there, I want you to think about some of the things that we saw in Psalm 37, beautiful promises that are there. Psalm 66 starts as many psalms start. I'll read the first two verses for you. Shout joyfully to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. That begins the way we could have done our call to worship with that right there. And you're just like, yes, that's one of the psalms. Skip down to verse 9 with me. Who keeps us, still talking about the Lord, who keeps us in life and does not allow our feet to slip. I really love that part. Don't let my feet slip. Verse 10. For you have tried us, O God. You have refined us as silver is refined. And then there's this sudden switch here, at least in my ears. Very important to see this. Verse 11, you brought us into the net. You laid an oppressive burden upon our loins. You made men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you brought us out into a place of abundance. Um, that's not my idea of provision. Uh, you know, can we go back up to verse 9 where you said you weren't going to allow my feet to slip? Um, but he says, second part of verse 10, in that chapter, you have refined us as silver. And I just looked up, I've heard this in other sermons before, what does what the process of refining silver look like? And I want to give you just a 
basic outline. Not going to spend long on this at all. Silver refining is six stages. I'm just going to read them out to you. The refiner, first step, breaks up the natural ore. The second step is he places the unrefined silver in a crucible, like a little container. And the third step is he places the crucible in a heated furnace to remove dross. So we're starting to get at those impurities through heat. You can already see the analogies that happen the way God does this in our hearts. I'm refining you like a, like a refiner refined silver. Fourth step is, he, this is the part I don't like, he raises the temperature to higher degrees. Lord, I thought you weren't going to let my feet slip. And he continues to remove the impurities. Fifth step. And finally, what the refiner is looking for is a clear image of himself. So all the impurities are burned out and then it's going to reflect that. That's when you know you've gotten to the 100% pure silver part, when he sees his reflection. It is a, a creative way of describing what Scripture calls sanctification. This process that God is committed to working in our hearts. That over the course of the entirety of your life, he is going to make you look more and more and more like his son. And it happens in stages over the whole, uh, the whole place in our life. And I, I want us to see this just in other places in Scripture. So just one more passage to turn to. Back of the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter, and then you get to the Johns, and then Jude, and Revelation. So almost to the back of your Bible is 1 Peter chapter 1. And I'm just going to summarize the content for us. Um, as you're turning there, the, the first few, three, four verses, uh, he's saying, you know, praise God for this eternal inheritance that we have in heaven. It's never going to perish or spoil or fade. And it's kept in heaven for us as his children. I love that part. Good. Um, and then it says, but now for a little while, maybe verse 5, somewhere in there. Now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Verse 6. One of the, one of the rare places in Scripture that says, here's why the trials come. When people ask you, why is there so much suffering in the world? Here's a good place to show them. Verse 6. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Gold, silver, it's refined by fire. Your faith is refined by all kinds of trials. And what God is going for is a faith, a genuine faith, because genuine faith glorifies him. That's what he's after. And so the provision in trial means that we never ultimately fall because, back to Psalm 37, we never ultimately fall because it's the Lord who holds our hand. So don't be discouraged. God's provision to me, to you, to us, includes testing. It includes trials. Because over time, uh, James says, the, the, the testing of your faith produces endurance. It's all over Scripture. It's all over Scripture. And I, I used to feel like this was sort of a cop-out verse, you know. We, just think about this with me. We pray for no trouble. I don't want no accident. I keep us safe. I pray that I stay healthy. I pray that my relationship stays uh, solid. 
Pray that nothing happens to me. So we pray for no trouble. And then if trouble comes, we pray that it wouldn't come. But if it does come, we say, well, we don't ultimately fall. I mean, yeah, this thing happened, but ultimately we don't fall. So it just kind of seemed disingenuous because it felt like, well, I got, I really got a good godly theological answer either way. If it doesn't come, praise God, I prayed for it, that it wouldn't come. But if it does come, well, we don't ultimately fall. And I thought, isn't that kind of cheating? Don't you feel like that sometimes? I mean, you got an answer for everything. And I'm like, does that just cheapen my faith? What is, what is this talking about? What I want us to see is the context of this psalm is not the absence of troubles, but it's in the midst of them. Very important to see this. We know that it was written by David in his older age after much reflection about why the wicked seemed to prosper, and he saw plenty of that, as well as how the righteous bear up under the ache of watching it all unfold, seemingly unnoticed. You know how we know this? Verse 24. When he falls. Not if. When. You're going to fall. That's the context of this passage. You're going to fall. So that the whole not falling, the way that I pray, maybe you pray too, that's my own invention. That's a Brad invention. But this was written in the context of you're going to fall. When you fall, you're not going to be hurled headlong. You are being upheld. You are being upheld in a powerful way by your father. And there's power there. And David says, I've been young and now I'm old, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken. And you see this theme throughout all of Scripture that the one who puts their faith and their hope and their trust in God never, ever, ever put to shame. Ever. And that's the promise. So, uh, when I think about, I I just don't want trouble. So, Lord, just keep it away. I'm the one who's kind of praying in an unbiblical way. It's not that we can't pray that way. But when trouble comes, it's not like, well, my prayer didn't work. It's like, well, you kind of cheated in the beginning. Because you're not, you know, the trouble's coming. The trouble's coming. Don't be surprised when the trouble comes. That's the context of Psalm 37. It completely disregards the context if you say, well, God didn't answer my prayer. No matter the intensity... You're never going to ultimately fall because you're being upheld by the Lord. That's the beauty. And this is where Satan loves to come along and just whisper in your ear, life should not be this hard. And if you're tired, you believe him. Yeah, life shouldn't be this hard. Life is this hard. (laughs) It is. Life is this hard. That's the only way a promise like this makes sense in the context of you're going to have trouble. And yet David says, I've been... I've been young, I've been old, never seen the righteous forsaken. Does that make sense? Moving on, moving on. Look how long, verse 27 to 29, in those three verses, look how long this provision lasts. Count how many times you see the word forever. In those three verses, 27, 28, 29, how many times do you see the word forever? Three times. Three times. You shall dwell in the land forever. We are preserved forever. We inherit the land. We dwell upon it forever. Remember the land, uh, just as a refresher last time I was here, the land was bigger than David thought it was. And the reason, the conclusion we got to from that, verse 11, Psalm 37, I hope you still have it open in your laps. 
Verse 11, we compare that with what Jesus says will happen to the meek in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. It's bigger than David conceived that it would be. The land is actually the new heavens and the new earth, completely untouched and untarnished by sin. So the Lord has addressed our needs and his promise of provision. Ultimately, it's he who gives us provision by establishing our steps and upholding us with his hand here and later inheriting this land, new heavens, new earth. Picture this place without any sin. Promise. Secondly, there is a protection. God says, I am going to protect you. What are those areas that make you feel vulnerable or invite you to feel insecure? I would say nothing makes me feel insecure like verse 32. Look at that. The the wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to kill him. Boy, it doesn't get any more in your backyard than that, does it? Um, these are, there are wicked people in this world who would love nothing more than to kill you. I feel secure. How about you? And you know what? There was a time not so very long ago we would have said, well, this doesn't really touch us in our country. We don't really see this. We do now. It's right here. Terrorism and the rampant acts of nearly weekly reminders tell us this could easily be our life. Easily. But pay very careful attention to what makes us secure. Verse 31. The law of his God is in his heart, and his, feet, his steps do not slip. And so again, and this is me just being honest with you, just talking out loud with you, here's my dilemma. I know the Lord upholds my steps, uh, but that he also allows trials. So how could I make sure that this terrorism isn't going to touch me. Where's my get-out-of-jail-free card so that I don't have to... That's never my experience of what happens. And, and the truth is, that's not really promised. And again, it's not even what the promise is for. Because remember, how much freedom do you have? How much certainty do you have? How much confidence do you have? How much liberty do you have to believe the promises that God has committed to fulfilling in your life? These are the promises that he's given us four times of trouble, not in the absence of them. And it's not that we're never, ever going to be hurt, but that ultimately, with the law of God in your heart, you are going to be upheld. Your feet will not slip. You will inherit the land, a restored earth, and that you will never be, verse 33, look at it with me, that you will never be left in the hand of the wicked and you will never, ever be condemned in the judgment of the wicked. Verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. (laughs) I can burn calories waiting. It is not a passive process for me. I am waiting. It's just like, it's just all my ticks and stuff. It's probably like a workout for me. The P90W, waiting, (laughs) waiting. Isaiah reminds us that those who hope in the Lord which absolutely includes waiting, this far-reaching thing that you're waiting for, those guys actually renew their strength. How many people are you praying for to know the Lord? Most believers have a list of people that they hope during the course of their lives or in the course of their lives that they come to know the Lord. And the, the lie that Satan loves to spin to us is that waiting is futile. 
and invites us for impatience. This isn't work. How long have you been praying for her? Are you kidding me? Well, yeah, go ahead. Keep praying. Go, sure. Why not? And we love to, and if you're getting weary, it's easy to believe the lie. But remember, and it's something we saw in the first half of this home, waiting is actually the antidote for anxiety. Waiting on him. Verse 4 and 5 of 37. Delighting in the Lord, him giving you the desires of your heart. What if the desire of your heart is the salvation of loved ones, family members, coworkers that you used to have? My cousin Angie and her husband Rick are a couple that we have been praying for for a long, 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 long time. They go to a Methodist church in St. Louis that's really liberal. And by liberal, I mean do good, get good is the theology that they hear. And I don't really know if they hear the gospel. That's not the gospel. And so I really get discouraged when I you know, see all of the things that they're doing and I think, gosh, they think that they're doing it right and this is not what the gospel is for and I pray for their kids. Um, and so we've been praying for them, praying for them. Okay, I'm going to push pause. I'm going to go to a different part of the story and these are going to match later. A um, couple that I used to go to church with back in St. Louis, New City Fellowship, where I grew the most in my faith ever, ever in my Christian life. Um, This couple have a daughter named Susanna. And Susanna, homeschooled, raised in the church, and as soon as she graduates high school, she kind of steps away from the faith. She doesn't renounce her faith, but she stops going to church, and she stops associating with the community of believers. She kind of does her own thing. And her dad emails me and says, hey, Susanna's kind of off the radar here. Pray for her. And so I reach out to her with an email and I say, hey, Susanna, hey, here's what Cindy and I are doing down in Alabama and here's what we're, you know, and hey, what's going on with you? And nothing. And a year later, I do the same kind of thing, just like we've been in touch all this time. Hey, Susanna, you know, we're doing this stuff and how are you doing and what's up? And nothing. And three years after that, a few weeks ago, she, uh, she emails me and she says, hey, send me yours and Cindy's address. I want to invite you to my wedding. Oh, huh. So I ask about the young man. Tell me about the young man. What's he like? And instead of are you, I said, where are you worshiping? She's not going to be worshiping anywhere. She writes back, we're going to Riverside Church in Webster Grove. Zach Eswine is the pastor. And I think Zach Eswine was one of my, one of my professors in seminary taught us how to preach. Maybe good, maybe not. Um, He taught us how to preach. And I know his heart for the gospel. And I know if he's the pastor of a church, he's going to explain everything. He's going to lay it all out. It's going to be easy. And he's so humble. And I thought, oh, I want to go for me. But Webster Groves, that's right in Rick and Angie's backyard. So Labor Day weekend, Cindy and I went home for the long weekend back to St. Louis. Our whole families are there. And I called up Angie and I said, hey, we're coming through town and we want to go out to lunch with you on Sunday, but there's a church right in your backyard that we want to try out and we want to know if you'll go with us. I'm just holding my breath. And she says, yeah, you know, the pastor of our church is retiring and we're looking for a church. And I'm thinking, all you know, and so we meet there. I haven't seen Rick and Angie for years. Because every time we go, it's a long story, you just see the same people over and over and we haven't seen them. And so we meet there and we're, we're, we're taking up an entire row. And I'm thinking, you know, as the worship starts, myself, 
my wife, Rick, Angie, and their three kids. We've taken up a whole row. And I'm thinking, the worship songs, and Zach is doing his thing that's so beautiful, and I'm thinking, a month ago, nothing. I'm praying for Rick and Angie, nothing. Here we are worshiping with them, and Zach is doing, hitting it out of the park. The gospel is everywhere. We haven't even seen Susanna yet. I don't even care if she shows up, you know. I mean, I see her later, and you wave, and you go, hey, Susanna. And I think, isn't that like the fingerprint of God that on the whim of a rebellious kid who walks away from the faith to try her own wings, coming back to a church, and it just happens to work out, that's the way God works. Who knows what they heard, but if they were listening even for five minutes, they heard the gospel because it was everywhere. And it's just, it just rejuvenates our faith. Verse 4 and 5 of Psalm 37, God delights to meet our needs, but in a way where we acknowledge our need and our reliance on him. And I think about how selfish I am. Here I just want to avoid pain. I feel like the best life is if that doesn't happen to me. Are you kidding me? God wants to demonstrate his provision, his protection, his promise in my pain to such a degree that my faith, that your faith is proved genuine. Because genuine faith glorifies God. Meanwhile, there's a picture of the wicked throughout this entire psalm that's just described. That, hey, what happens to them that are having the best time of their lives by sight right now, what happens to them, when it happens, it's going to happen really, really fast. Verse 2, 9, 10, all through the first half of the psalm. Pick it up in verse 34. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. I have seen a wicked, violent man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. Nothing wrong with that guy. He is doing just fine. Thank you very much. Then he passed away and he was no more. And I sought for him, but he could not be found. The absolute opposite of having the security that David is describing for us in this psalm. Not only are the wicked not secure, but their ultimate fall will occur quickly. And when this happens, there is nothing for them to hang on to. There's no provision. There's no protection. There's no promise. It will never be our experience as God's children. Ever. Not only does he give us his provision, his protection, thirdly, finally... He gives us his promise. Look at the emphasis of looking ahead, beginning at verse 37. This forward gaze, first for the righteous, then for the wicked. Make a note, mark the righteous one. Certainty given to us as an example. This one has a future, while the wicked's future is cut off, humiliated, made an example of, made public. Verse 39, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The time of trouble comes to every faithful believer in Christ. You can't avoid it. It's coming. We know to expect it. And Satan is going to come along beside you and tell you that you shouldn't have to face that. And he's going to try to coax you into impatience and lure you away. But the best promise comes in the midst of that struggle. It's a different way to think. You won't hear it outside of Scripture. But we know never to examine 
the truth about whether or not God loves us by looking at our circumstances. That's what Satan will try to sell to you. God doesn't love you. You've been abandoned. Look at all this stuff happening to you. You know how long you've been waiting, and he wants to coax you. Get your eyes off of God. The evidence of God's love is revealed in the cross. (laughs) That's how we know he loves us. Sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. And the beauty of his promise comes alive to us in our struggles. I want to introduce you to a couple that I went to church with in New City in St. Louis. Eddie and Lori Jones. They live in the suburbs, and they were, uh, this is back early 90s, and they had a conviction that what New City Fellowship was about, uh, you know, people moving into the city so that instead of going into the city and saying, Jesus loves you, and then hightailing it back to the suburbs, we're living with them. So it's more of a shoulder-to-shoulder discipleship. And I promise you, it deepens your commitment because if they're getting shot at, I'm getting shot at. Now we've got to do something. So I'm with you in this solution of how kind of the new city vision. So they, uh, they got this conviction to move into the city. And so they uh, looked at buying this house in this really run-down area, North City. And, um, and they said, you know, we, we, here's a house that needs a ton of work. And when I saw it, there was a big hole in the front hall and went to the basement. When I say a big hole, I'm talking about the size of four pianos here. Huge hole. I'm like, not a hole. The floor is gone. No, no, it's a hole. Okay. <laughs> Let's think positively. You know, and I'm like, yeah, it is a fix-me-upper. Holy cow. <laughs> All right. So they're looking at this house, and I'm thinking, well, that's faith. I'm going to be watching over here. So they said, in faith, we're going to put our house on the market. It sold and they got their asking price. So they sold their house. So now the Jones family know where to live. So they ended up moving in with these empty nesters at our church, an older couple. Um, and so the Jones, Eddie, Lori, their three children, their two dogs, and their iguana, moved in with these empty nesters at our church. I actually ended up taking their two cats. Um, And so for five months, this arrangement worked out. And over the course of five months, you know, when the honeymoon is over, when you're like, oh, that's okay. No, that's okay. Oh, did you have enough? No, I haven't. When all of that is gone, and the empty nesters are like, we want our house back, and it's obvious that, you know, this isn't working out. Okay, so the Jones move from there. They end up living at the church that used to be a school for the deaf, St. Joseph Institute for the Deaf. So there's this wing where the nuns used to live and they refurbished it so that the Jones could live there. The Jones lived there seven more months. So now we're a year outside of our home. All of the money that they made from their house in the suburbs, Overland area, is going to refurbish the fix-me-upper in the city. And so uh, ultimately they ran out of money. All of those monies poured into this. And so the final inspection, the city comes in to give the okay. And they gave the Jones a five-page list of big stuff that still needed to be done. Talk about an invitation for despair. We don't have a place to live. We can't afford the house that we're fixing up, and we have sold the house that we came through. We are trusting you, Lord. You say you don't let our feet slip. Are you kidding me? Can you taste the despair that must have been theirs? 
Longer story, but I'll tidy, uh, I will tidy it up. It's a word I never use. I will clean it up for us. They titled their house to the church. And the church used missionary and volunteer teams to finish up all the rehab that was needed in that house. And they titled it back to the Jones family, and the Jones family moved in one year after that. So within two years without a house when they went into this house. Beautiful rehab. We did house church there. Amazing house. Absolutely amazing. And I love to jump up and down where the hole used to be. Something. This was all negative space here. This was all... And this is the beauty of trusting in God. And immediately, right after they moved in, Eddie Jones lost his teaching job of 20 years. They're like, what? Come on, are you kidding, Lord? Are you kidding? This is the life of the faithful follower of Christ. This is what it looks like. And I talked to Eddie last night, wanted to make sure I got this story right. I said, remind me how this worked. And since then, up and down, up and down. This is the Christian life. This is what it looks like. This is being faithful. That's why the promises of 37 even make sense. That's how they make sense. Unbelievers, I work in grief uh, counseling and I hear all these horrible, horrible stories. And people who are believers come to me and they say, how do you do this without the Lord? And I always say the same thing. You don't do it real well. You don't do it real well. Conversations with unbelievers are like landmarks of crisis. And then this person died. Then there was this accident. And then I had this injury. And then these two people died. And those are just, just a landmark, just a timeline of tragedy. And sometimes, usually without the Lord, there's some kind of addiction in there because whatever's going to take away the pain of this heartache is now my number one go-to. So there's all kinds of even horrible addictions weaved into through there. But for believers, the tragedies are all there. Don't get me wrong. All the tragedies are there. But littered in is the faithfulness of God, of how he delivered, of how he came through in a moment where nothing was working. And the promises of Psalm 37 just leap off the page. They're all right there. And they're beautiful because you've been in that place of desperate need and you hang on to them and God protects and God gives provision and God gives promise and it's beautiful. I just want to close with this tiny little email. This just happened, so I have to share it. One of my coworkers, brand new believer, by the way, brand new Christian, cancer. And she's been out of her office since spring, since about the time I was here is when she started her uh, chemo and radiation. Double mastectomy. She's young. She's in her uh, early 30s. And she's really, really open about the struggle. And so she sends these updating emails to us from her home. And I want to read you the last one that we got from her. And she says this. I know I keep saying this, but God has been so good to me. I want you to know that whatever trial you're in, brand new Christian, whatever trial you're in, whatever pain, trouble, or heartache you're going through, he's so faithful. I am in water so deep over my head, but there is peace, rest, and comfort. And I am learning to rely on God for everything. Cancer has been cancer. Cancer has been the sweetest, most incredible experience that has ever happened to me. (laughs) Other than turning my life over to Christ, oh, and the New York Giants winning the Super Bowl four times. Giants fan. Love that. Honesty about how hard it is in the struggle. And then to be able to say, and this is something you'll never hear from an unbeliever, 
that trial, that thing I'm waiting for, this pain, best thing I ever went through. Because we got promises. We have amazing promises. Look at verse 40. It's not just the close of a nice psalm. The Lord helps them and delivers them. Do you believe that? He delivers them from the wicked. He saves them because they take refuge, refuge in him. That's his promise to us as his kids. How much freedom do you have to believe that? How much liberty? How much confidence? How certain are you that God is going to deliver you in the midst of your troubles? I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to pro- I promise these things to you. I am committed to working these things out. As your life looks like it's falling apart, I'm not going to let you down. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, your word is so beautiful. And we pray that every one of us would take it to heart in a way that meets us as we struggle, that you're not gone. You're going to meet us in the struggle. You're going to deepen our faith that you tell us is worth more than pure gold to make sure that it's genuine because genuine faith honors and glorifies you. So we pray that you would glorify yourself through us in the manner that you choose. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.